1 Samuel chapter 9, if you'd find it with me. We began last week in this little character study of the life of Saul. And I would simply remind you that, um, that the way that I'm looking at it, I'm looking at Saul as a type of the self-life, the old man that rises up so often in us. Israel represents the heart of man and Saul is the first king to sit on that throne. David is, will be the rightful king, but David will not reign until Saul is dead. Christ will not reign in your life until self is dead, to die to self. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, and I'm really, I'm really interested in chapter 9 and chapter 10, the events of these two chapters, and I'm not going to read those two chapters for sake of time. But in 1 Samuel 9 and verse number 1, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. March 11th of this year, England crowned Charles III as King Charles, making him the 40th monarch of Great Britain. The coronation took place at Westminster Abbey, where every coronation since 1066, William the Conqueror, has taken place. And as you can imagine, the coronation of a king is a highly orchestrated event with rituals and ceremonies and pomp and circumstance and all of that. Thousands of dignitaries and world leaders crowded into London for that historic event to pay homage to the new king. Billions of people watched it via television around the world, really not understanding the significance of it all, but taken in by the glamour and the glitz of it all. And even if you don't have any interest in the monarch, as most Americans do not, you're still impressed with the extravagant display and the wealth and all of the ceremonies. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 10, we have the coronation of Israel's first king. And it certainly lacks the pomp and circumstance of coronating a king like in Great Britain, but it does not lack in intrigue and mystery and providence. The prophet, the elders have come to the prophet Samuel. They have demanded that he choose for them a king. With the constant threat of the Philistines, with the rising threat of the Ammonites on the horizon, they felt that it is time to transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. We need a more organized government instead of this loose confederacy of tribes. We need to be more sophisticated. We need to be more organized, a more official form of government. And they felt that a monarchy would give them more standing in the world. If we're going to do trade and commerce, we need to be more official. And, and it will centralize power and government. It will enable us to raise a standing army. So yes, it is time. For us to transition from this theocracy, God ruled to a monarchy. And as we move into this next scene in chapter 9 and 10, I, 
I want you to bear in mind, and this is very, very important as we go through this, that, that neither Samuel nor God had anything good to say about this decision. We found out last week in chapter 8 that Samuel was dismayed because it was his old age and it was the failure and this dishonesty of his own two sons that became the impetus for this request. But the Lord assured Samuel that they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. Their rejection is of God. And so Samuel stands before them in chapter 8 and he warns them that their demand is in disobedience and the rebellion of the heart. He rehearses to them the disastrous consequences of getting a king this way, but the people have made up their mind, we will have a king. So with the solemn warning issued, God instructs Samuel to give them what they've asked for. But again, bear in mind, this is very, very important that though God will grant them their request, it does not make their request right, and it does not mean it has now become the will of God. You understand that just because God gives you something that you ask for does not mean it is his will. God's choosing does not always indicate God's will. And that is the case here. Now, the next two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10, are going to describe in much detail the circumstances surrounding of how Saul came to become the king. And I'm not going to read the entire story. In fact, I'm not going to preach the entire story. But I want to set the scene before you. I want to put it in our minds, and then I am going to make some application. Samuel has assured the people that God is going to grant you your request. He's going to give you a king. And at the end of chapter 8, everybody has returned to their homes to await the next step. The responsibility to find this king falls upon the shoulders of Samuel the prophet. But how do you go about finding a king? Where do you find a king at? What do you look for? Do you accept resumes? Do you conduct interviews? Do people send in pictures of people they think would be a good king from their village? How do you find a king? And so Samuel has to find this man. And the young man that is chosen by God is this young man named Saul. And there's a long tale of how it came to be that Samuel knew he was the chosen one. Through twists and turns and providential happenings, it is confirmed to Samuel, then to the people, and finally to Saul himself, that he is God's choice for Israel. In the verse that I read to you, we're introduced to Saul as the son of Kish. And everything said about him is about his outward appearance. He was a tall, good-looking young man. The family farm has some asses that have wandered off, and Saul's father has dispatched Saul and a servant to go find the asses. Now let me stop right here and put a parenthesis right here. The word asses in your Bible is the word for donkeys. An ass and a donkey are the same animal. I checked that out. Now a donkey and a mule are not the same. 
But an ass and a donkey are the same thing. So we use the word donkey in our normal conversation, but when we read it in the text, we read it as it is. So when we read scripture, we don't change the word, it is asses. But when we're just talking, we use the word that we commonly use, it is the word donkey. So asses, donkeys, whatever word that you want, these animals have been lost. And every commentator wants to elaborate at great length at, at how valuable donkeys were in that agricultural land. But it is what it is. Donkeys lost have to be found. That's what we have. So Saul and his servant set out on a trek, and after three days of wandering about, they have neither seen neither hide nor hair of these donkeys. And Saul begins to wonder that we've been gone so long that my father's going to be worrying more about us than he is the donkeys and maybe we ought to call it off and just go back to the house. And that's when the servant says, let's try one last thing. He says in a city nearby, there's reputed to be a man of God, a prophet, a seer, and maybe we could go and we could inquire of that prophet and see if he knows where these donkeys are. Saul brings up the fact they don't have anything to give them. The servant says, oh, I have a quarter shekel of silver. Surely that would be enough to get a prophecy out of the prophet. And Saul says, we have nothing to lose, so let's go see. And it's interesting that in the text, that neither Saul nor the servant know the name of that man of God. We know his name to be Samuel. As they approach the city, they meet a group of young women drawing water from a well, and they inquire of those young women, do you know where the man of God resides? And they say, in fact, we do. The man of God resides in this city, and he is, in fact, on his way right now to a gathering to offer a sacrifice. If you hurry, you can probably catch him there. Saul and the young man, they began to go into the city. And when they walk into the city, they encounter a second person unbeknownst to them. It is Samuel himself. They do not know that it is the prophet, but Samuel has been told by God the day before that he's going to send him the man that is to be their king. And though they do not know him, they never, never met Samuel, they don't recognize him, but Samuel recognizes Saul. Saul, Samuel already knows the destiny of Saul, and Saul's still just looking for donkeys. So Samuel invites Saul and his servants to come up to the feast, the offering that I'm getting ready to sacrifice, and sets him in a seat of honor. They give him the choice meat, and then he tells them, don't worry about the donkeys. Saul has not mentioned them. They've already been found. They're back at your daddy's house. You don't have to worry about that. He said, in fact, you're going to stay the night, and tomorrow I'm going to tell you the real reason why you are here. And it's all mysterious and it's all providential. It's evident that God has orchestrated these events. He has set this thing up. So early the next morning, Saul and his servants, they are getting ready to return home. And Samuel pulls Saul aside for a private conversation. And it is here that Samuel pours the anointing oil over Saul. A private anointing. Tells him that God has chosen you to be the king. You are the one that the nation has been clamoring for. Well, this is certainly not what Saul was expecting. This is bombshell news to him. And then Samuel, to give him confirmation, Samuel then tells him what's going to happen throughout this day to give you confirmation. 
He says, when you leave, the first thing that's going to happen is you are going to meet two men, two prophets, and they're going to prophesy unto you. And then after that, you're going to meet three men, and these men are going to prophesy unto you as well. And then he said, then you're going to reach a hill where the Philistines have a garrison of soldiers, and you're going to meet more prophets, and you're going to prophesy with them. And everything that Samuel says happens exactly like he says. They meet the two men, they meet the three men, they meet the prophets, and Samuel saw himself even prophesies. Everything that Samuel has said. And in chapter 10 with his prophesying, when Saul prophesies, there is a change that takes place. But Saul says nothing about the anointing. He doesn't tell anybody about the kingship. He waits for Samuel to call for the people to meet at Mizpah. And there Samuel rehearses to the people that you've asked for a king. You've asked it for in rebellion. God's going to give you a king and we're going to draw lots. And the lot falls upon the tribe of Benjamin. It falls upon the family of Kish. And it falls upon Saul. And it's all been set up. Saul knows all of this already. And Saul is hiding among the stuff. They have to coax him out of the stuff, the closet, wherever he's hiding. They have to coax him out. And they crown him as king. That's the story of 1 Samuel 9 and 10. I will tell you that 1 Samuel 9 and 10 is not the most preachable portion of scripture in the Bible. I will tell you that nearly all of the preaching that I have heard or read, I think, misses the point entirely. If you are a Calvinist, then all that you see in 1 Samuel 9 and 10 is the sovereign decree of God. That's all that you see. Well, that's all you see anyway. It's all providence. It's all sovereignty. It's all decree. And God is rolling this thing along, and you are just along for the ride, and that's all there is. And to be sure, God is setting some things up in the providence of God and letting Samuel know ahead of time that Saul is coming and directing Saul to that city that there is for sure. But I think that it is wrong to take this story and make it teach a near fatalistic view of providence that life is just rolling along and you are along for the ride and you can't fully influence anything that happens in your life. I, I don't believe that. I don't think that's the lesson of these chapters. Sin. It is very common to look at Saul in this chapter and extol him for the remarkable character traits that he displays. He obeys his father in going to look for the donkeys. That's good. He's persistent. He spends three days looking for these donkeys. That's good. He has respect for the prophet to go inquire of him. We'll look in a minute where he's given a different heart. He is humble to be hiding and everybody is looking for him. So for all of the flaws in Saul's life that would become evident, at least he starts out really, really good and he's got a good beginning and there's a lot of promise in Saul. Maybe. Because I think there's actually two different ways to take this and I'll let you decide, okay? Because it's not my main sermon. I'm warming up and I'm getting to my message in just a minute. And here's the first way that you can take it. Is that all of this that Saul is God's gracious gift to the people. You see, here's what we're guilty of. Is looking at the life of Saul in retrospect. I read 1 Samuel 9 and 10 in light of what I've already read. 
I already know how his life is going to end up and all of the character flaws and I've already got them made out and I've got them outlined and I can't wait to preach on them. But is it fair? Is it fair to look at him right now in light of what he's going to be and what I already know about him? I think that you have to be fair in judgment in light of what he is going to become later on. Do we need to give him the benefit of the doubt? And so in spite of their sinful demand to have a king, the thinking is that God gives them Saul out of his mercy and his compassion because he has noted the nation's calamities and their distresses and he has sent Saul to deliver the people. It's not like God picks out the worst of the lot. It's not like God picks out a scoundrel. No, he finds somebody that has outstanding physical attributes, somebody that is certainly suited to the task. But, but if that's the case, then I wonder why did God pick someone out of the tribe of Benjamin? Did not Genesis 49.10 say that the scepter shall not depart out of Judah? If that's the case, then this cannot be the beginning of a dynasty. And he is God's choice for sure. But, but why did he choose someone out of the tribe of Benjamin if this is God's gracious gift? How do you reconcile God giving them a gracious gift when it is in light of their rebellious behavior? What about them rejecting God? What about them asking for a king in rebellion? How about Samuel telling them at Mizpah again that you're in rebellion? How about them acknowledging that yes, we have sinned in asking for a king? So I don't think that, that Saul is God's gracious gift to Israel. I think that Saul is God's judgment to Israel. Because what he's going to do is he's going to give them a king that is just like them. You see, I, I have come to believe that there, there is a, another side to Saul, even here at the beginning. In fact, hold your finger. Don't, don't lose this place. Go to Hosea chapter 13. If you can find Hosea, go to Hosea chapter 13. And, and, and this prophet makes a comment on this. In Hosea chapter 13, and, and look at verse number, verse number 9. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And the judges of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger. Does that sound like God's giving them a blessing or a curse? Does it sound like that God is rewarding them or is God judging them? There is not one thing spiritual said about Saul. So God is not giving them a spiritual man. And even though God gives them what they're asking for, he is not bowing to their rebellion. Come back to 1 Samuel. Come back to me. Let me show you a couple of statements that are made. Look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. 1 Samuel 10, look at verse number 6. The Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another 
man. The Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied. And by the way, it was such a strange thing for Saul to prophesy that it became a byword in that day, a slogan that when something highly unusual happened, the slogan was, is Saul also among the prophets? You find that at the last phrase in verse number 11. When something just unusual, highly improbable happened, the saying would be, is Saul also among the prophets. But we read about how the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied, and we read that almost as if Saul got saved. Almost as if that is a conversion experience. But, but, I, but I would just remind you that Cyrus was God's servant as well. He was an instrument in the hands of God. And God has already said that this king is going to take and he's 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 given them a king that's going to do exactly that. That's not a blessing. That's judgment is what that is. The last statement of verse number six again. Shall be turned into another man. I'm not reading between the text, but it doesn't say a better man. It says another man. Well, what kind of man did he turn into? Show me the good qualities that he became. And I'm not saying that Saul, that God set him up for failure, but Saul was not converted. He did not become a spiritual man overnight. He may have become a better person for a while, but he did not become a spiritual person. And there is a world of difference. I, I do not read, and you can take it differently, but I do not read Saul's heart has been changed and turned into another man in evangelistic terms. It could be that God is just shaping him for his purposes, and God uses the unregenerate man as well as he uses the regenerate man. It says in verse number 11, Or verse number six again, the, the Spirit of God, or, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I've, I've missed my word. Verse, verse number 10. When they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among him. Now, that's a completely clear statement that the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied. We know that the Holy Spirit did not indwell men in the Old Testament like he did after Pentecost. We understand that the administration of the Holy Spirit is different. But what does it mean spiritually that the Spirit of God came upon him? Because in Numbers chapter 24, the Bible says that the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet. In Judges 14, the Bible says that the Spirit of God came upon Samson. Not a spiritual bone in his body. The Spirit of God comes upon him and he prophesies. He prophesies among them as did Balaam. Balaam prophesied as well. You take it any way you want to. Spiritual man saved men, sanctified. You take it any way you want to. But I, I, I'm looking at it and I, I, I don't believe that he is a blessing. He's going to turn out to be a curse what he's going to turn out to be. It's the judgment of God. Now with that context, with an understanding of 1 Samuel 9 and 10, I want to draw out for your consideration three thoughts that I take from this scene as a whole. Here they are. Thought number one is that appearance is no indicator of accomplishment. In the verse that I read to you, it is striking to me 
Not the first thing. Indeed, the only thing that is said about Saul is his outward appearance. As if the best thing that the scripture could come up with is that he was good looking. I mean, he, he looked the part. He stood out as an impressive young man. And that's surprising to me because everywhere else the Bible downplays outward appearances. Samuel later on, he comes to Jesse's house. Do you remember? And Eliab, the oldest boy, comes through. And Eliab, I mean, he looks like he could be a king as well. And God said, look not upon his countenance or the height of his stature. <laughs> don't, don't, don't look at the height of his stature because I have refused him. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. By 1 Samuel 9 and verse number 2, we don't know anything about Samuel's temperament. I don't know anything about his character traits. I don't know anything about his respectfulness. I don't know what kind of attitude he had. I just know he looked good. That's all that I know. What, what did he believe? Well, what was his core conviction? What was his ambition? What did he want to do in life? How has he been raised? What, 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 what is he all about? And he's tall, dark, and handsome. And that's all that I know. He appears to be manly, but does he have a kingly spirit? What about his soul? Does he really believe anything? I mean, does he have any core convictions? What about his courage? What about his character? I mean, there's got to be more to him than he just looks good. And, and, and to be sure, there, there's got to be more than he's just tall and he's handsome and, and, and all of, But that's the only thing that I am given. And I wonder if the writer wants me to be impressed with the fact that he's tall and he's a good-looking young man, or if I, want, I wonder if the writer wants me to be impressed with the lack of everything else except his appearance. The writer tells me the most admirable thing about Saul is good looks. And does he want me to be impressed with that? Or does he want me to be impressed with that's the best thing that we can say about him? And it cannot be overstated that everything and everyone is not as it appears. A young man pursues a pretty girl because she looks good. And I'd have you know there's some good looking devils out there. You better pray to God you don't get one. You can tell God how much you want her and God just lets you have her and your punishment is you got to keep her. Huh? Amen. Amen. A man can evaluate a job opportunity, a career move. He looks at just the parts that he wants to see. We are experts on evaluating it on all of the externals and I can talk myself and God into it. Huh? But you better see more than the appearance. We grade our politicians by how they look. On the debate stage, they stand on stools so that they don't look short, they're tall. How fake is that? Huh? And that's, how, that's how we judge people. Churchgoers evaluate a church by what programs do you have? You have for the children, what do you have for the seniors? Do you have jazzercise on Friday? What do you have? I, I'm looking for programs. We, we are so impressed by what we see of what we see, but, but, but seeing can be so deceiving because Eve, Eve was impressed by what she saw, but she was deceived and Lot was taken in by what he saw and he lost a family over it and Achan was taken in by what he saw and he brought shame upon his family. 
King Saul will not turn out to look anything like the picture. He is tall in stature, but he is small in spirit. He is attractive and ugly all at the same time. And appearance, attractiveness does not indicate accomplishment. A royal statute and, and an imposing figure does not fit him for the dignifying position of the throne. It's a false assumption to judge a man on an outward appearance and to try to measure his worth by the clothes that he wears or the car that he drives or the job that he has or whatever money that he has in his hand. And at one time, Saul was thought to be among the prophets, but then you read how that he despised the prophecy of Samuel himself. He is probably surrounded by an entourage that keeps stroking his ego. There's not one thing that is distinctive about Saul except that he looked good. But let me turn it positive though, right? Because it's not just a negative, it is a positive. Because if you don't look good, if you're not distinctive and impressive, but if you have a good heart, take consolation that God looks upon the heart. You may have not been voted most likely to succeed, but God sees what other people overlook. And so young people, don't try to be impressive, try to be distinctive. If you will build the inner man of character and integrity and a heart for God, then God will take care of all the outward things. I'm thinking of a young lady right now that I was so impressed with, so impressed with, but the more that I get to know about her, the less impressed I am with her. She's not in our church, so don't get thinking about trying who she is. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for, for greasy hair and drabby clothes and looking as bad as you can. That's not what I'm trying to say. But beauty and talent and, 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 and eloquence can be a vice. They're not, but they can be. So don't be so taken up with the appearance, the image, as you are the reality of who you are. Your real worth lies underneath the surface. The most valuable part of you is that which is not easily seen. First Peter 3, we, we memorize the verse. Whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of the plaiting of hair and wearing gold or putting on apparel, but let it be the inward man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. The most attractive people in the world are those who have the inward ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. So I say to you that attractiveness is no indication of accomplishment. There's a second thought that I take out of these two chapters, and it is this. Giftedness is no indication of godliness. I've already pointed out to you, in my view, I do not think that Saul was a spiritual man. There is no doubt that God did something in him. The Spirit of God came upon him, he prophesied, he made him another man. And I don't think that God set him up for failure. I don't think it's as if God said, I'm not going to give you a chance. But you can't escape the fact that the scripture says absolutely nothing about his relationship with God. You can take it either way you want to. I heard a man preach, and I cannot for the life of me remember who it was. But I heard a man preach some, a year or so ago, and he preached on Saul as a type of Christ. And I want to be honest with you, there ain't no Christ in him. Now, I'm, not, I'm not trying to explain anything away, but though God equipped him 
for the role that he has designed for him that does not make Saul a converted or a consecrated man. So Saul is not mentioned in any of the Psalms. Saul is never referenced in the New Testament. He certainly does not make it among the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I can't find one verse in all of my study of Saul that speaks of his reliance upon God. I can't find any scripture that says that Saul loved God. I don't find any place in the Bible where it even says that Saul loved other people. I believe that just like Pharaoh was an instrument of God to punish his people, I believe that Saul was sent in judgment. And it's interesting to me that in chapter 8, one of the reasons why the people ask for a king is that he might go out before us and fight our battles. Well, that's interesting to me because in 350 years of judges, not one judge died in battle. Saul would be the first king to die in battle. That's interesting to me. And Saul will show flashes of promise. When the first act is king is he gathers men against the Ammonites and he wins a victory over them. There, there, there is promise there. There is hope that he could be a good king. He's not, he, he, he's not a dummy. Please understand that. He, 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 he has charisma. He has good rapport with people. He commands men to follow him. 330,000 men gather at Gibeah to fight against the Ammonites and God gives them a victory and a leader must be assertive. He must be willing to take charge. He must be willing to take risks. He has to have men to surround him and to follow him. And he shows some leadership qualities. I want to give him where credit is due, but here's what I want you to know. He is a gifted man, but he is not a godly man. There is a difference. I think the best illustration of that is the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you want to look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know that 1 Corinthians is written to the church of Corinth by Paul. It's mostly... Rebuke. There's just not much good you can say about that church. But Paul started out with the best he could find, and it was that you are a very gifted church. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 4, he says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, for as the, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift. There's not much good you could say about that church, but you could say they were a gifted church. Musicians running out their ears. Talent in abundance. Musicians and singers and teachers and whatever you wanted. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, he will list spiritual gifts. And this church does not lack for any of them. It is a very gifted church. But the thrust of 1 Corinthians is that though you are gifted and you come behind and no gift, you are a carnal church. What you have in giftedness, you lack in godliness. In fact, in chapter 3, chapter 3 and verse number 1, he says to this very gifted, talented church, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? And walk as men. You are so spiritually mature that I can't give you the whole load, I got to talk to you like your spiritual babes. I got to water it down for you. The word carnal found, 11, found 16 times in the New Testament, 11 times found in 1 Corinthians. And over and over and over, he says, you're gifted, but you're carnal. 
You're worldly and you're fleshly and you're self-serving and you're self-centered. And to no other church did Paul say that they were carnal. But the most gifted church is the most godless church. We have a talented church, don't we? Oh, and a setup. We have a gifted church. So you're so gifted in music and, and graphic design and, and, and just so many things. Gifted at teaching and gifted at organization and gifted at administration and others working with their hands and serving and helps. I mean, we're just gifted. Oh, God puts in the church what the body needs, the gifts that the body needs. But I want you to know that giftedness is not enough. There must be godliness with the giftedness. The test of a good Christian is not the abilities that he possesses, but do you walk with God? If you have spiritual gifts, but you do not have a spiritual walk, you are a walking contradiction. I say to you that giftedness is not an indication of godliness. I've heard people sing in church so beautifully but live outside so ugly. I'm not picking on singers. I've heard men preach in the pulpit and wax so eloquently on the pulpit. And then when you see them out of the pulpit, they're just as carnal as goats. Gifted but not godly. I'll give you the third thought and I'll, I'll be done. Attractiveness, no indication of accomplishment. Giftedness, it's no indication of godliness. A third thought, hiding. There's no indication of humility. Now you're going to think that I'm biased, that I, I just got it against Saul, but I'm going to tell you what I see. Come back to chapter 10. Let me show it to you. First Samuel chapter 10, and look at verse number 20. When some other caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families. The family of Matri was taken and Saul, the son of Kish was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he had hid himself among the stuff. They ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, here it is again. He was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. Samuel has told Saul that you're to be the next king. Saul doesn't do anything to advance them. His uncle asked him, what did the man of God say? And Samuel tells him, but he leaves out the whole part about being the king. And then when Samuel calls the people to miss, but the thing is already set up. I mean, they know who's going to be anointed. And the lot falls upon Saul. And where is Saul? He is hiding among the stuff. And all oh, there seems to be a sweet humility about him. He doesn't clamor to be king. He protests to Samuel, I am the, from the smallest of the tribe. He doesn't seem to have high aspirations. And we may be seeing humility or we could be seeing insecurity. And they're not the same. In fact, I think that's what we're seeing here to be amplified many, many times over through his life. I'm going to make a point, and I'm going to make it repeatedly as we go through his life. So I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag. Saul's greatest fear was the fear of failure and how it would make him look. 
His greatest fear was that he looked bad. Insecurity is a form of pride. Pride doesn't always manifest itself in boasting and braggadocia. We look at the braggart as, as the proud man, but the braggart is actually a very insecure man. He can't stand on his own merit, so he has to pump himself up. He has to prop himself up with all of these boastings. And every action of Saul would be driven by either pride or insecurity, and usually by both. Now, I don't have time to survey this, but Jonathan takes a thousand men and defeats a garrison of Philistine soldiers at Geba, and Saul puts the news out that the victory was his. He has no qualms for taking victory for a battle that he did not fight, for taking credit for something that Jonathan accomplished. He would take another man's victory to bolster his own reputation. That's pride and insecurity. Saul's men have been fighting. Heat of the battle, and Saul makes a rash decision, we're going to fast today. They're famished. They are weak from the battle. Jonathan is the only man that dares to defy him, and Saul is willing to have his son put to death for violating his silly rule because his reputation is more important than that relationship. The worst thing that you could do with Saul is make him look bad. I mean, think of how angry he became when the ladies began to sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Think think about when when Samuel had to come and, and to tell him that God has rejected you as king after he refused to slaughter all the Amalekites. And Saul is not concerned with his disobedience or even that the kingdom has been taken away. He's concerned with how he's going to look. Look, look at it, 1 Samuel 15, look at that. I'm almost done. 1 Samuel 15, look at verse number 30. He says to Samuel, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. Samuel, I know I did wrong. I know I have sinned, but we're going before those people. Don't make me look bad. The same pride and insecurity that has him hiding on coronation day. It's the same pride and insecurity that has him taking credit for Jonathan's victory. His religion is a sham. Every sacrifice he made is not to worship God, but it is to worship himself and make him look good before the people. So I say, he's hiding among the stuff not because he is a sweet, humble soul. It's not because of his own sense of unworthiness, though I believe that's there. I believe he is more proud than he is humble. And that pride is going to raise its ugly head on every page of his life. If he's humble, this is the only day that you see it. Hiding is no indication of humility. God calls you for a task. God puts a calling on your life. And you feel so unworthy of it. I'm not fit for the task, the call, whatever it might be. And you have to determine, is this humility or is this pride? Am I fearful that I'm going to fail or do I just feel unworthy? And what you ought to be able to do is say, Lord, I'm unworthy. I don't feel qualified for the task. But by your grace and by your anointing, if you'll help me, I'll step out by faith. And I'll do exactly what you've asked me to do. And so I have said, piano player, calm, that Saul is a representation of the self-life. 
And self, myself, yourself asserts itself in self-seeking and self-serting and self-indulgence, self-pity, self-deprecation and self-justification and self-exaltation. And neither Saul or Jesus Christ sits on the throne of your heart. You're either full of self or you're full of the Spirit. Pride shows up in so many forms. And pride is the most damaging of all emotions. These six things that the Lord ate, yea, seven, are an abomination, a proud look. Is there any soul in your heart tonight? Any soul? Attractiveness. It is no indication of accomplishment. Giftedness. It's no indication of godliness. Hiding. Won't take the call. There's no indication of humility. 